Welcome to the Upper Room Community Church Podcast. Wherever you are in your journey, we hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit us at upperroom.ca. Today's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 through 11, NIV translation. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church. Good to be with you this morning. Thanks, Dan, for reading. My name is Dave, and uh, I get to serve on staff here at the church. And uh, so good to be with you this morning. If you've been uh, walking with us for the past couple of weeks, then you'll know that we are in a series called Halfway to Heaven. We're actually in week three of Halfway to Heaven. And um, the purpose of this whole series is to understand that the church, uh, like Melissa said at the beginning in her welcome, the church is meant to be the place where we get to experience a taste of heaven right here and right now. And uh, for people in the room that are people of faith, uh, there, are peop- there are things rather that we, um, that we long for, uh, there are things that we hope for. And one of the things we're continually discovering as we lean into community, as we uh, continue making our way through the word of God in scripture, one thing we continue to see is that God is actually already doing many of the things that we hope for and many of the things that we long for. And we don't always see it really clearly, But the more we pay attention to what's happening around, it's not that we're waiting one day for this heaven thing to happen, whether it happens to us or we go there. And it's not actually about that, first and foremost. It's about paying attention to the ways that God is already doing these things right here and right now. And so when we think of these ideas of heaven, uh, one uh, hope that we have for the whole church is that we would understand heaven as being um, this idea of like closeness to Jesus. Okay, close proximity to Jesus. And when we look to the person of Jesus, when we get to know him and understand him and experience the love that he offers us, we begin to experience already things like wholeness, 
Things like restoration, things like peace, things like harmony. And so as we look to Jesus and say, these are the things that we see in him, those are actually the fullness of which we will experience in heaven. And so what we have is this tension where we're in this already and this not yet kind of thing. And so if, if, if heaven is close proximity to Jesus and the church is the place where we get to encounter Jesus in community and encounter Jesus through other people, then that means that heaven is actually something we've already begun to experience. I found this quote. It's by a Catholic priest named Henry Nouwen, prolific writer, um, really worth looking him up and seeing uh, what uh, he had to say. Actually, he's buried in Richmond Hill. So if any of you ever wanted to go and do like a pilgrimage or something and visit, you can do that. It's at Stovall Road and, and Young Street. He said this, heaven is the ongoing discovery of God's mystery by living in the most intimate presence of God and each other. The Christian life on earth is simply the beginning of this heavenly existence. Now, here's what I love about this. Every once in a while, you start, uh, you hear from God an idea or you're reflecting on something and you share it. So over the last couple of weeks, VJ and I had been sharing about this idea of heaven being an already but not yet close proximity to Jesus thing. And then I went and I was reading just in my regular daily stuff and I found this quote. And I love it when somebody who is, you know, so much more mature and spiritually deep says the thing that you're already thinking. It just confirms that God is actually doing something. God is actually saying something. And so um, that's one thing. That's not the most important thing. Uh, what, what's actually important about this is what it's saying. And that is heaven is a continuing, ongoing discovery of the things that God is doing. It's, it's, we're actually to think of heaven not as a geographical word or, or a type of destination, but the word heaven is actually a relational word because it talks about the relationship, it points us towards the relationship that we have with God, as well as the relationships we're meant to have with one another. How we connect with him and how we connect with one another. And so it's just an encouraging thing, I hope, for all of us to understand this is this is an ongoing process, something we are continuing to go deeper in and getting a bigger, stronger taste of what heaven is like by understanding what Christ is like and knowing that we get to experience it right here and now. And this is the purpose of this whole series, right? We're not spending eight weeks on this stuff just so you can say, you know, oh, that was a good sermon series or it was an okay sermon series or anything. When we preach, like the stuff we spend our time focusing on is not just so we can get another series, you know, and say, oh, we covered that topic in the winter or fall of 2019. It's not for that. If that's, if that's how we think of our sermons, it's all like a royal waste of time, to be honest. The reason we're, we're leaning into what God is saying about this is because we believe uh, that we're not as transformed fully as we're meant to be and that we're on a journey in community together. We want to continue becoming people who are growing closer and closer to Jesus. So that way we'd be made more and more like Jesus. So in turn, we can be Jesus to one another and to the world around us, demonstrate who he is to the people around us. This is about a process that we're all in. And that's really what we want to call it into. And so we intentionally called it halfway to heaven because there's this, this idea is that, well, we're not there yet, right? We're, we're, we're still in this process. And, and this morning, I'm going to talk about, um, we're going to talk about a subject um, that is one of, the, one of the kinds of things that makes us say, I don't even think we're halfway to heaven. You think we're halfway? I'm not even sure we're headed in that direction at all. And the, the topic is conflict. Was, this is where we're going. You ready? Conflict. 
every once in a while, we come across things that make us have this sense, we, are we even doing what we're supposed to be doing? And when we talk about conflict and, and the, the tension even that perhaps you may be feeling already, you know, nobody wants to look around, you know? <laughs> that tension that you feel, this is one of the things that helps us understand we're not where we are meant to be yet, but there still needs to be hope that there can be peace in the midst of the conflicts that we may have. And so I know it's not the most pleasant to topic uh, to talk about, but it's one that is so vital for us to cover because conflict is unavoidable. Conflict is something we are going to find ourselves in from time to time. The reason for that is because conflict is an interpersonal issue. It's a relational issue. It's something that happens between people or groups of people. And so long as we are around other people, we are bound to find ourselves in the middle of it. And here's the thing about conflict. Conflict is hard. We don't often do conflict very well. And the church is not immune to it. Conflict is hard. We don't do conflict well. And the church is by no means immune to it. And so because conflict is hard, because it's difficult, because we don't always want to work through it and put the elbow grease and the, the work into it that is needed to, to process it, we end up doing a couple of different things. And, and you know, maybe you've heard this before in terms of responses to, to conflict or tensions, and this is fight, flight, or freeze. So for some, when you find yourself in the midst of a conflict, you are a fighter. You are a screamer, and you are an arguer, and emotions rule, and you are not, like it is a cage match. Like you are not, that conflict is not sorted out until it is dealt with, and, on, and more often than not, somebody is in the corner weeping, ruined, and you're the clear winner, they're the clear loser. That, that's how some people in the room deal with conflict. For others, it's, it's flight. It's, we run away. We, we don't like conflict. Uh, we avoid it. Um, and then when we find ourselves in it or we sense that it's getting close, we just start to pull away. We, we pretend it's not there. Or if something has taken place, we sweep it under the rug. We shove it in a closet. We try to forget about it. Every once in a while, it tries to crawl back out from under the rug and rear its ugly head. And we just try to shove it all the way back under there. There's a flight. There's like, I don't want to deal with this. I'm going to pretend it's not real. I don't know how to handle it, whatever that is. And, and, and that's what happens. Others freeze. And this is kind of like we don't do anything at all. Uh, we, we either don't know what to say, or we don't know how to act, or we feel uh, victimized and, and stuck as if we're not going to be listened, and, and, or listened to and understood, and as if it's, it's getting to this place of hopelessness. And, and this idea of freeze is not just in that we freeze in the moment, but I think when we do freeze to conflict, when we don't act on it, something else takes place. And that is over the course of time, we actually begin to become numb. You ever been out in the cold so long, you start to lose feeling in your toes, and your fingers, and then your ears? And like you're trying to keep your core warm as much as you can, but those extremities. And what, what happens when we freeze in the midst of conflict and not acting on it one way or the other is it actually makes us numb to everything around us. It actually makes us numb to other people, numb to relational values that we have or trying to reconcile and make peace. And, and it's, it's there. <laughs> and whether you know it or not, there is conflict in your life and in my life. There's conflict around us and... There's conflict in our everyday lives. There's conflict in our work lives. There's, there's certainly conflict in the world around us. I was reading some article recently, I think it was from Times uh, Magazine, and it was talking about all of these um, protests and, and uproars and things that are happening around the world. And, and the whole concept of the article was saying is that there's just a growing, rising frustration in general with the state of humanity right now. 
And so you can look at all these different conflicts and say, well, it's a political reason for this, or it's a war thing because of this, or it's a geography thing because of this. And those are all reasons, absolutely. But a lot of underlying that is that there's, there's just this tension that um, there's conflict everywhere. We're conflicted people. We're frustrated with it. It's everywhere. And can we just be completely honest and real for a second? There's conflict in the church, too. And hear me, it's not just that there's conflict in the church. There's conflict in this church. And there's conflict in our congregation in Bolton. And we're not going to get up here and pretend like we can just talk about the, the topic of conflict and uh, pretend like it's a thing out there, but it's not for us. Because if we did that, then what would we be doing? We'd be avoiding, right? And nobody ever said the church is going to be a place where there is no conflict. Anybody who ever said the church is a place where there is no conflict is somebody who's trying to avoid the reality that there is conflict. That's what that is. Or somebody who's been so frozen up by it. And it's true. We see it dealt with in all sorts of bad ways. We see it dealt with in, in ways where people get hurt and there's collateral damage. And I see a number of you looking at the slide, which makes me feel like I missed a slide which probably says something, I'm not gonna look, I'm just gonna trust my guts on it, that conflict is the thing, because you're wondering what it is, conflict is the thing that arises when disagreements go undealt with, and then they continue to fester and they continue to grow, and when we leave them alone, they actually get worse and worse, and we get to this point where hope and reconciliation seems to have slipped away and be lost altogether. And here's the thing, we're all feeling that right now, this awareness of, of conflict in our own lives or in work or in school or in our families. Maybe some of us now are aware of it in our, in our church life or relationships as a part of this community. And we get that that is actually what it is. That when we don't deal with it, when we don't lean into it, when we don't try to find a way to resolve it, to find peace, to, to offer forgiveness, it's going to be something that kills us. It's going to be something that hurts us so, so badly. And so no one ever promised it, that it's going to be a place that's conflict-free. But here's what I'm saying. Here's what I want for us to hear and take away today, is that even though this is a reality, even though we are surrounded by it, this is not hopeless. It's not hopeless. The church, the community of the people of God, is meant to be the place that redefines everything we think and know about how conflict is meant to be dealt with. It's a place where we look to Jesus himself and say, there has to be another way. And he says, there is. And I'm going to show it to you. And I'm going to walk with you. And I'm going to be with you in it as you go through these difficult times, as you work towards resolving conflict. The church is not immune to it. And it's not just true for the church today. It's, it's been true for the church since the institution of the church, since the beginning of the church, the establishment of the church 2,000 years ago. So we've been working for the past few weeks through uh, the letters of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, which are two letters that were written to a church. You find them in the New Testament of the Bible. They were written there by a person who was influential in starting uh, up those two congregations. And these were early communities of Christians that were trying to do what we're trying to do, which is understand how do we get more of Jesus into our lives and how do we express more of Jesus into the world around us? They were trying to do the same stuff we were trying, we're trying to do right now. And, and in it, as you just spend your time walking through the letter, you start to pick up that the church in Corinth had conflict. There was issues there. there. There were challenges there. And so the writer says this in verse 1 of chapter 6. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Now, 
When he says, if any of you has a dispute, what he really means there is when you have a dispute. He's not saying that, you know, conflict is a possibility or dispute is a possibility. He's saying it's an, in it's an, it's an inevitability. <laughs> and he's not talking about something hypothetical that may or may not happen. He's actually talking specifically about a type of conflict that was ruling in their congregation. They were people in their congregation that were regularly suing one another and taking each other to court over the different conflicts and disputes that they had. Now, that wasn't just something that was in the church. This is something that was very common in Roman society. It, uh, one historian that I was reading said that it, it was not uncommon for uh, courts to be open from sunup until sundown. And that there were cases being seen either by a judge or, or by a jury every single minute. If you had a lot of money, you could bribe a judge and the court cases would often, often be dragged out and it would just turn into who was friends with who and who offered more money. And so the cases, even when they were sorted out and uh, um, decided upon, when there was judgment, uh, they were very unjust, they were very unfair. It wasn't actually about the issue, it was just about the person that offered more money. In other cases, for, uh, for poor people, they would still go before a jury, and in some instances it's said that the jury dealt with the decision on the conflict that was, at, uh, that was there uh, within a minute or less. So basically you got in front of this group of people, you shared with them what was going on, and within a minute they made a decision and they got on with the next one. So think about this being a normal part of society. You got court cases that are just so, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They're so broken, right? So convoluted. There's no, not even truth or justice involved in it. It's just all about who can influence who. And to mention the fact that um, you've got cases that are happening every minute or every couple of minutes. Just you get, You're wrapping your heads around how many court cases there must have been about how broken this would have been. And this is a defining factor of the society around them. And so the problem that the church in Corinth had was not just that they had conflicts within their own church, but it was that when it came to dealing with the conflicts in their own church, they tried to deal with it like everybody else dealt with it. They took other people within the church to court. Now, that, that's, that's, there's lots of issues with that. And one of the issues for that is that the church is something that is meant to be fundamentally different in terms of how it thinks, how it acts, in terms of what brings it together. It's meant to be fundamentally different than the society and the world around us. So when things are taking place within the church that are no different than the things that are happening outside of the church, or when we go for wisdom or counsel or decision or insight from places outside of the people of God, we have a real problem on our hands because what we're saying is, essentially, um, we can't find solutions to the things that we're dealing with in life here. We have to go to places that live and act even without God. And that's what Paul is using the words intentionally when he says pagan judges, right? Or when he talks about, what's the word he uses there? Before the ungodly. The word there is actually pagan. People who live as if there is no God. You see how this is a, this is a problem? And so the reason it ought to be different within the church is because... We follow Jesus. And Jesus is fundamentally different than the world around us. As you read through the life and times of Jesus in the autobiographies, not the autobiographies, the biographies of Jesus that we have in the, in the scriptures, one thing you see is that over and over and over again, he was subverting, he was flipping around, he was just taking a completely different approach, an otherworldly approach to the world that we live in when it comes to everything. 
And so there's things that Jesus did that didn't make sense to the people of the time. And there's things that Jesus says in terms of how we're meant to act now that don't make sense to us. And the reason for that is because we are so deeply influenced by the society, cultural, world norms around us that we think that when Jesus steps in and does stuff, it's so backwards. But the reality is we're backwards and he's not. And we need him to help us see what he's doing. And so the, the real issue for the church in Corinth was not just that they had conflict, because again, no one ever said that there won't be conflict in the church. The, the issue for them was that when it came to working through it, they did it just like everybody else did. And there's more to this problem, not just true for the church in Corinth, but true for, uh, for us today as well. And that is sometimes we can be so blinded uh, by religious pride by spiritual, um, by raising ourselves up on a spiritual platform where we say, you know what, well, we worship the God of infinite wisdom. And we can hold this in a judgmental way over the world around us and say, if only they knew, look how lost they are. Look how lost the world is. And this was true for Corinth. Another part of the story uh, in the background there is that they had a tremendous spiritual arrogance. They were people that looked um, at one another and, and said, well, I'm more spiritually mature than you because I have this position in the church and you only have that position. And, and look at me, I can speak in tongues and I can prophesy and I can speak the truth. And, and what are you doing? They had this arrogance and this pride around them, but that was all connected to the way they said they were relating to the living God. And yet Paul is saying, he says in verse five, I say this to shame you. He's saying, you ought to be ashamed of yourself because you're the ones that say you're so close to the all infinitely wise God and yet you don't even go to him to help you with your problems. You go to the rest of the world. And this is so much a problem when it comes to how we sit, face conflict. We do it for all sorts of other things too, don't we? Right? We get relationship advice from magazines. Why do we do that? You know, we don't ask friends or other people in our, in our home group for advice on a, on a situation. We go to our financial advisors and get their insight before we've even come to see what the people of God might say. And, and God is working in lots of ways. And yes, we do have lots of wisdom around us. But the point is, if we actually have access to a God like this, and if he's working in our midst through one another, then why are we going to outside sources to deal with stuff? Why aren't we starting with him? Why aren't we starting with the community, the body that he has given us? Why don't we do that? And so he says they should be ashamed of themselves. He even says, as you continue reading this passage, as Dan read for us, this was actually causing them to lose credibility before people who were not Christians. Because they say, well, what's the difference? You guys are in the church and you fight just as much or even worse than the rest of us. So who cares if I'm a Christian or not a Christian? And it was actually affecting their witness. It was affecting their influence on other people around them. They were losing their credibility. And I think I may have said this, but I suppose it's worth reiterating. For them and for us to go to outside wisdom, outside of scripture, outside of God, outside of prayer, outside of this community is essentially to live as a pagan. A pagan is somebody who lives as if there is no God. And that's what he's, that's all the stuff he's teasing out here as he talks about pagan judges and worldly wisdom and all these things. And we have access to it, but when we act like it's not there, we are essentially acting like them as if there's no God anyways. That's problematic. Notice how he says, um, one brother takes another to court. He says this, um, he's, 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 he's calling them out, right? <laughs> so he's saying, this is a problem. One brother takes another brother to court. 
And so he's saying you, the, the disputes and the conflicts are so bad that you're even taking other family members to court. Now, if you were with us last week, you actually heard the way that uh, Vijay unpacked this idea that the church is more than just a community. It's more than just a collective of people who are following the same God. We're actually made into the same family. So what Paul is getting at here is not uh, just as simple as saying um, one biological brother is taking one biological brother to court, though that would actually show you, man, is there ever problems in that family, right? He's also saying this happens within the church because you are brothers and sisters within the church. And so it's actually, in a sense, even worse when it happens here. Because as Vij said last week, we don't get to pick our biological families, but we do, in a sense, get to pick this one. Or God has picked us and brought us in from all of these differences. And in our own biological families, there may be differences in, in, in worldviews and perspectives and, and whatnot. But here, we're all leaning in the same direction. The very thing that has united us is not a thing at all. It's Jesus Christ himself. And so there's something that must be different here. And Paul is saying, this is absurd that you would be taking one another to court over all of the things that you're doing. Now, you have heard me say for the last number of minutes that the church in Corinth had a problem with lawsuits and taking people to court, okay? That this is an underlying issue. For those of you that really want to know the nitty gritty, some of the specific stuff Paul was talking about probably had to do with property. And there was some discrepancy on who owned what property and all that. So if you want to know the issue, that's what it is. Which now begs this next question. What if you're not dealing with an actual lawsuit or trying to sue somebody over property? Is this irrelevant? Or is there something more to it? There's obviously something more to it. You might be sitting there saying, well, Dave, I got conflict. I got, I got issues, I got challenges, I got problems. I've been hurt. I even maybe have hurt other people. Um, but I'm not taking anybody to court. Like, hold on. I'm not doing that. The bigger point that Paul is making and that we need to pay attention to here is not just that they were taking them to court. The court in their day, the pagan judge, that idea is actually connected to the way that the world and society around us deals with the whole myriad of issues. And so we might not take people to court for the issues we have with them, but we still do act like the world around us does. Well, like, for example, we attempt to keep the peace instead of putting in the hard work to actually make peace. Those are different things. Keeping the peace as well, let's just pretend everything is fine. Let's not bring that up. You know, on the drive to you know, the family dinner, you're saying, listen, we're probably gonna talk about a bunch of stuff, but these are the topics that are off the table. You cannot bring them up. That's actually not making peace. That's not peacemaking, it's just being quiet. It's actually really just avoidance. It's really just putting it under the rug, pretending it's not there, and that's a problem. Uh, we also, in some instances, fight relentlessly, right? Like I said before, until the other person gives up or moves on or is completely left, like, just decimated. We, we do that. Uh, we, we pretend there's no problem. That's avoidance. But what else do we do? We can gossip and talk badly about other people that we're in conflict with. And I brought this up a few weeks ago, this idea of gossip being talking about people instead of talking to people. Well, that's sometimes the cause of conflict, and that's also sometimes the result of conflict. And I'll tell you what, it doesn't make conflict any more better. It actually makes things completely worse. Uh, the way that we act is we, instead of leaning in in times of conflict to say, you know, we need to talk this through and work this through, what's it gonna take? We slowly slip away 
from the individual or from the people group or from the community where the conflict is had. And we just say, I, I just, I, I can't handle it. I'm going to slowly slip away from it. And maybe one day the problem will go away or I'll just be unnoticed or by then at least I'll be gone. We can even cause greater relational divides or bigger conflicts because we try to drag other people onto our side of it. Right? We say, no, no, just they they don't understand. They, you, they're not telling you the truth. I'm, I got the re I have the re actual truth. I, I'll tell you the real side of the story. And so this is the point. You might not be trying to take anybody to court in terms of how you settle your conflicts, but do you do any of those things? Do I do any of these things? And we do. Because we don't do conflict well. Because we don't know what to do with it. And it's 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 unfortunate, it's heartbreaking actually that the church becomes a place where conflict is not dealt with and where conflict, in some instances for some people, is the definition of conflict. Church is meant to be a place that is the ultimate picture of unity. People from every walk of life, ethnic background, socioeconomic background, every sense of diversity and difference you could possibly think of, brought together and aligned <clears throat> around the person that is Jesus. It's meant to be a, a diverse picture, a mosaic, if you will, that shows the world just how incredible God is. And yet for some, they look at it and they don't see that. They see it as the example of, uh, of, of division. And so when we think of things like huge blow-up arguments, when we think of things like people leaving churches, when we think of things like um, church splits, I was a part of a church split growing up. Uh, my family and a number of others split from another church, and that was hard. I walked away from the church completely uh, because of that happening as a teenager. Um, those things don't happen out of nowhere. Those things come <clears throat> as the result of smaller individual, smaller conflicts that take place, that go undealt with, that we try to shove away, that we try to hide, that we try to put under the rug, but actually that continue to grow and continue to fester and continue to uh, make us sick to our stomach and actually begin to change our perspective on how we view other people. Um, it, it, it just, and, and eventually we lose hope. And we start to say, well, it can't be done. There's nothing we can do. It's too far gone. Stuff like that in your life has not come out of nowhere. It's come over time. And, and it's worth reflecting on this. If we don't understand and don't know how to address conflict when it's small or when it's just started, what makes us think we'll know what to do when it's blown up and it's big? Like, how can we possibly say, well, I know what to do when crisis hits, but we don't actually know what to do when it's actually not a crisis, it's just a smaller offense. What makes us think we'll be able to do that stuff? when we don't even know how to, or we don't even want to deal with the stuff right here. And it's not always just avoidance. Some of us want to deal with it right here, right now, but it's brought an aggressor out of us. It's brought a bully out of us. It's brought an evil person out of us, actually, in terms of how we've dealt with it and worked with it. Um, some of you are saying, well, okay, I mean, this will be great, I guess, to get a little bit of a step-by-step -step on what to do when conflicts are small, but some of you are in the situation where the conflicts are already two years old, or five years old, or 10 years old. You're already in that. And you're saying, well, no, no, it's not that I'm losing hope. That hope is, it's a dot. That's how far it is away, if it's even that. There is hope. There is hope. And there is a way. There actually is a process that's laid out for us in Scripture as to what we are to do. So we're actually going to just step away for a minute from 1 Corinthians. And we're going to go to Matthew chapter 18. Sometimes when I'm reading Scripture, and if you've got a, a copy of the, of the Bible with you, I'd encourage you to turn with me on your phone or if you've got a paper Bible, whatever you've got. Um, Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. 
And, um, you know, sometimes we think, or I think, I don't want to put it on you, but sometimes I think, wouldn't it be great if, like, um, Scripture just gave you, like, a step-by-step walkthrough of what you need to do in different life situations without all the extra hard work of trying to interpret what did it mean and all this kind of stuff? And, I, I mean, I think that all the time. And, and, and here we have this. And so you might have the sense of, of relief right now. Oh, okay, good. Jesus, these are his words, is going to tell us what we need to do. And you know what? It is so clear, and yet it is the hardest, most painful, most messiest thing. And yeah, we need to pay attention to it. So Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, or for where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. And so, Jesus is speaking to this tension that we feel when we've been hurt or when we've hurt someone else. And the word he uses is sin, when one of you sins. And this passage, for those that have grown up in the church, has sometimes been used to be used as like, this is the ammunition I have to go and get someone for the sin that they have. Now, the idea with sin is that this is an all-encompassing, big, major concept, reality. It means brokenness. Things not being the way that they're meant to be. And so a lot can fall under that. And I know that interpersonal relationships through conflicts are included. And so when you are in the midst of a conflict, what should you do? Somebody says something, or what should we do rather? What we should do, Jesus is saying, is we should not let it slide. We should pay attention to it. We should point it out, which means the action should be in inviting somebody into a conversation, inviting them into co to a coffee to say, hey, there's something we need to talk, we, I, I want to talk about. What do we normally do? Or what do we tend to do? Or what would we rather do? Avoid it. We'd rather go home angry. We'd rather let it just natter away at us. I don't know why we'd rather do that. I'm saying me, like I even do that sometimes. Instead of bringing it up, oh, it's going to be too much work. I don't even know if it's ever going to get through. That's what happens. So what should we do and what do we do? Well, Jesus says, okay, you know, if you go and you, if, if you get to the point of meeting with somebody, though, and a lot of times we actually don't because we're trying to avoid it. He says, if you go and you talk to them and they don't listen or there's not clarity, then what you need to do is you need to invite another person in. So what should we do? We should invite another person from the community into that conversation and say, hey, I know we met about this last week, but I'm actually just going to invite our home group leader to come and join us to actually kind of help us navigate this conversation where there's this conflict. What do we tend to do? We tend to give up right away and say, well, I tried and they didn't listen. What are you going to do? You know, we tend to say uh, things like, you know, I'm actually more angry at you now because you didn't respond, because you didn't know now. Instead of asking other people for help, we go to other people and we say, would you believe that I took them and met with them and they didn't listen and that they didn't have any ownership? Do you believe that? And we turn it into gossip, not talking to them, talking about them. Now, Jesus 
continues and he says, okay, it's possible that you'll do this and they still won't listen. Now, remember, on the flip side of this, there's hope that when you do it, they will respond. <laughs> don't, don't forget that. Don't glaze over that. Jesus giving a four-step model here doesn't mean that you have to use all the steps every time. Right? He's saying you can do this and it, it, could, it, it possibly will work. Step three, if they're still not responding, what should we do? Bring it to the church. That doesn't mean run up here or stand up in the middle of the crowd, in the middle of a service or anything like that. It means bring it to the elders. It means bring it to the pastors. Bring it to the staff. You bring it to us. We'll talk it through with you. We'll pray it through with you. And then we'll step into that process as well. That's what we should do. But what do we tend to do? We let any hope of, of, of forgiveness or restoration just slip away. We say, look, I even tried twice, but it's just not working. It just didn't work. Or we decide and we say, you know what? I don't actually think I want help with that. I've come to terms with it. I've left it alone. I'm over it now. I don't even want to, I don't even want to deal with it. And you know, it hurts me when I get told stuff. Maybe I said this at the beginning. I don't know if I did, but it's worth saying again. I think I've said that more than once already. <laughs> I'm not trying to hang anybody's laundry out on the line for the rest of the world to see, okay? We're not trying to do this to shame anybody. There's this real tension that, that VJ and I experience on a regular week-to-week -week basis, and that is we know what's happening in the lives of people in the church. So when we start talking about things, some of you are like saying like, oh, can you believe he's up there talking about conflict this week when I just told him about this conflict? And like there's a, a brewing conflict right here, right now because of that. And it's like, first of all, we planned this out months and months and months ago. Second of all, it, I hope it's relevant for this very reason. And I'm saying this as a pastor who talks with people that have these challenges that we actually want to walk with you in it. That doesn't make our lives easier or better to walk with you and step into your messes, but it's the thing that God has called us to do. And, and we're going to trust him in that. And so I'm pleading with you, if this is the situation you're in, if anything, but come to us. We want to walk with you in it. If there's still no change, you've even brought it to the pastors and it still hasn't happened. By the way, if you have a problem with me or a problem with VJ or a problem with one of the staff, you go to the elders. That's, that's how that works. Like you ought to go to them. I mean, well, sorry, you need to follow Jesus. You need to take me out for coffee. <laughs> then you need to take your home group and us out for another coffee. And then if I still am not listening, then you go to the elders. Just letting you know how that works organizationally. <laughs> and if there's still no change, if there's still no change, I'm not going to pretend, okay? <laughs> I'm not going to pretend that there's no beef. It's there. There's still no change, then what should we do? Jesus says something that makes us feel not good. He says, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Pagan is somebody who operates as if there's no God. Now, some of you are like, yes, there's the justification. Let's kick them out of the church. Let's forget about them. And if that's your attitude, you've missed the heart of Jesus. Because when you look again at the life and times of Jesus, how he spent his time, where he gave his love, where he gave his forgiveness and his peace, where he gave his attention, do you know who he spent all the majority of his time with? Pagans, tax collectors, the longest list of sinners you could ever think of including you and me. And so this is not an excuse to say, well, I've done everything we can, now we give up. It's actually, we've done as much as we've been told, and now we change our strategy, and we actually demonstrate more of Jesus. I told you it was hard. What do we tend to do? If it ever got that far, what do we tend to do? That's a complete write-off. Avoid them at all costs. Not Stop inviting them over. Sit on different sides of the theater. Increase division by getting people onto our side and trying to just, it just gets worse and worse and worse. Now, you got to notice something else Jesus says in here. He says, um, tell this to the church. You know why this is interesting? At the time Jesus was saying this, the church had not been established yet. 
The church was something that was established as Jesus was preparing to ascend into heaven. After he ascended, the Spirit of God comes and this movement of Christ followers start, and they become known as followers of the way, which becomes the church. Jesus is speaking ahead of time about an issue that he knew inevitably would arise. And he didn't make it a one-shot deal. He gave it a multiple-step process because he knew just how, how, how hard it was going to be. And then he says this great verse, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. And this is powerful because this is a promise. Jesus is saying, when two or three of you get together to lean into the midst of the difficulty, that's the context, isn't it? The conflict, the sin that you're dealing with. When you do that, when you lean into the process, when you invite me into it, I'm going to be there with you. He's saying, you can't deal with your conflicts by yourself, and you're not supposed to deal with your conflicts by yourself, and you don't have to deal with your conflicts by yourself. I'm there. I'm with you. Which raises the question, do we even invite him in? Do we even want him to be a part of how we settle things or not? And if we don't, then that puts us back in the situation of the Corinthian church. Settling things the way the rest of the world does, but not going to the ultimately wise God who loves us and cares for us and hopes for us. Let's come back to 1 Corinthians for another minute. I want us to look at the second half of verse 7. So he's just said, Paul is saying, uh, the reality is that you are defeated, that there are conflicts among you, you're defeated. That's not a hopeless thing. He's just saying this is a big, big problem. There ought to be so much unity here and cohesiveness and connectivity and relationship here, but it's, it's broken. It's as if you're defeated. And then he says, by asking two questions, he, he asked two questions, which are possibly two of the most insensitive, obscure, irrational, upsetting questions in all of the New Testament. He says, why would you not rather be wronged? Why would you not rather be cheated? When it comes to conflicts that you have, what is it within you? What is it within us that makes us feel as if we deserve something? Why, why isn't it better to understand that there's a cost or there's going to be hurt in the midst of trying to make relationship work? Why, is, why, is it, why would we risk division why would we risk blowing up our, our witness and our, our ability to demonstrate the love of God to each other and to the world? Why would we risk all of that when on the flip side of it is, is, is being hurt or being wronged? And you know what my response is out of that? Why wouldn't I rather be wronged? Because I don't want to have had that thing done to me, Paul. Like, I don't want to have been offended. I don't want to have been shamed publicly. I, I, I don't want to be wronged because I'm hurt, Paul. Like, what do you mean, why wouldn't I rather be wronged? Who wants to be hurt? I don't want to give up. I don't want to give in. That's why. Why wouldn't you rather be cheated? Because I want justice. Because I want what's fair. I want what's owed to me, what I feel entitled to. I want compensation. I want restitution. Paul, that's why, Paul, come on. Like, what are you missing here? What planet are you on? That's an interesting way of phrasing it. What planet are you on? He was on this earth, but he had a heavenly mindset. And knowing that to be people that are in, uh, uh, that are in process, halfway to heaven, He's trying to bring the reality of it to earth right here, right now. And so he's not asking these questions because he's confused. Paul is asking these questions and putting this in front of us because he's so committed to the Jesus way of community being formed, of peace and restoration and reconciliation and forgiveness being offered, that he knows in order for people who are in conflict with one another to be brought back together, he knows that there has to be pain, he knows that there will be hurt, and he actually knows that there has to be death. Someone, something, something has got to die. And so what Paul is actually doing is he's taking Jesus' model and he's upping the ante. 
He's taking it one further. He's saying in order for all the pain and all of the hurt that brokenness and conflict and has caused, in order for that stuff to be dealt with, something has to die. That cost is us dying to ourselves. It's us dying to our desire to take revenge. It's us dying to uh, our desire to win an argument in the case, even though it might mean we win a, you know, win an argument even though it would mean that we lose a, a relationship. He's saying there are things within us that need to die. And it's hard, and it's difficult, and it sucks, and it's painful, and it's messy, and it's work, but it's what Jesus did. It's exactly what Jesus did to resolve the greatest conflict any one of us has ever had, and that is the conflict that existed between us and the living God himself. Jesus steps into the world, literally, and begins this process of restoring back to the creator God all of the ones, us, his creation, that have been broken and in conflict and separated from him. And you look at Jesus and you see that though he wasn't guilty of a single thing, he never resisted his arrest. Even though Jesus was only worthy of honor and glory, he opened his hands and let go of every single one of his rights. And he was humiliated and he was hung on a cross and he was shamed and he died publicly for something that he didn't even do. Even though Jesus is the creator and the sustainer of all life, he chose to give up his life to offer life to those that didn't have it, which is you and me. Jesus was wrong and Jesus was cheated even though he never did anything wrong and he never cheated anyone else. Jesus was treated unfairly and Jesus was treated unjustly even though he is God who is the author of justice and fairness itself. The only one who even knows what justice truly means on that level. And why did he do that? Why did he bear the marks of the cross? Why did he give his life for the sake of restoring broken people? That leaves us in this situation as followers of Jesus, those in the room that are trusting and following Jesus, it leaves us in this situation. It makes us have to ask the question, well, I've been forgiven, knowing there was a cost to purchase that forgiveness. Am I willing to pay a price to offer forgiveness to someone else, even when it hurts so bad? The church is made up of people who are meant to love like Jesus first loved us. And love comes at a cost all the time. Every bit of love always has a cost. There's a quote I heard, and I think it's from somebody around the church. I'm not sure, but if it's you, credit is yours. Forgiveness looks like wearing the scars of someone else's sin. So being able to forgive someone else doesn't mean that we just get along and everything is easy. It actually means addressing and confronting the problems and then experiencing some of that pain and some of that hurt that comes along with it, right? Repentance, seeking forgiveness from other people is actually a painful thing that leaves us with scars and marks too because we have to own up to what we've done too. That's the Jesus way though. And it hurts and it's painful, but it's worth it. The Jesus way is one that looks like death because he made it possible through his own death. And even though it is a way that looks like hurt and pain, death and mess, it's the only way that, look, it, that leads to life. It's the only way that will lead us to restoration and peace, the things we're actually truly desperate for. I'm going to make the worship team to come up. And as they do, 
um, I just want to acknowledge that um, the Holy Spirit of God may be illuminating something in your life right now. Maybe your heart is racing. Maybe you just have like this hyper awareness, hyper clarity of a place, a relationship with an individual, with a, with a community, with this church, with your home group, with your family, at work, at school, in your neighborhood, your neighbors, whatever it may be, that God is just illuminating to you that there is a conflict there and it is so vividly clear and he's even making clear to you that it feels hopeless or where you've been at, where, whether you've fought about it or whether you've frozen about it or whether you've fleed from it or whatever it is. And I'm just, I'm begging you, pay attention to that. Don't let that go away. Pray and say, God, what are you saying? Or, or what am I supposed to do? Part of what I think he wants us to do is to follow the Jesus method, which is to look to Matthew 18 and take it step by step. So for some of you, for some of us, we need to go to the other people, other, the other person where there's been hurt, where there's a conflict, and we need to say, can I talk to you about something? Some of us need to say, you hurt me, but I want to forgive you and we need to talk about it. Some of you are on the other end of that. You haven't been the receiver of, of hurt. You've been the giver of hurt. You need to go and say, I hurt you, and I need your forgiveness, and I want to own up to it. Can we talk? And I purposely put these things on the slide in quotations to give you the actual words, because you might be saying, well, I don't know what to say. Just say this. Just say this. Others in the room are third-party people. I mean, someone's come to you and they've shared with you a problem that's going on, a conflict that's going on. You can't be a third-party bystander, according to the Jesus method. It means that we actually have to lean in. And so if that's where you're at, you've been invited in, the words for you are, I'm going to help you resolve this, and I'm going to stick with you the whole way through. And just like Jesus promised, when we invite him in, he's there where two or three of us are gathered in his name for the sake of Christian unity, for the sake of reconciliation, for the sake of forgiveness and peace, for the sake of dying to ourselves that we may live together in this taste of what heaven is meant to be here on earth. He is right there in the middle of it, doing a work that only he can do. And so Jesus in heaven, I just pray for your help. There's so much conflict, God. There's so much hurt. There's so much pain. But it doesn't need to be this way. Jesus, you promised to be in the middle of it. You're inviting yourself into the worst, grossest, messiest, most painful things in our life, which is the conflicts we have with other people. And we want you inside. So Jesus, I pray that you would soften us, that we would invite you in, that we would listen to you, and that we would begin to experience the fullness of wholeness and restoration and grace and harmony, all the things we long for in heaven one day, that you would show us that that's actually meant to be who we are as people here and now. On our own, we can't do it. But you've shown us the way and you've made it possible. And so we trust in you. As we continue to sing now, Jesus, it's all worship to you. We pray in your name. Amen.